0: of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. It is made possible by grant funding from the Academy of Teaching Scholars at the University of Oklahoma. The views expressed in this podcast are based on the participants' research, but at times may represent their expert opinion only. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest today on the podcast is Dr. Camille Gunderson. She is a G1 oncologist here at the University of Oklahoma. She completed her fellowship here last year and we are glad to have her on our faculty. Welcome Dr. Gunderson. Thanks Dr.
1: Smith. I'm happy to be
0: here. Dr. Gunderson on today's podcast I'd like to talk about the evaluation and management of adnexal masses. This is a common problem we encounter here at our university. Sometimes we see patients who present with a mass found incidentally, and we also see patients who come in with complaints of pain that's caused by an adnexal mass. Can you give us an overview of how common these masses are? Adnexal masses vary in frequency by age, but overall are very common.
1: Approximately 5 to 10% of women in the United States will undergo surgery for a suspected ovarian neoplasm at some point during their life. The majority of adnexal masses are benign, but the risk of malignancy increases with age. The lifetime risk of ovarian cancer in United States women is about 1 in 70, or 1.4%.
0: Okay. Can you tell us about what approach we should use when we see an asymptomatic patient with an adnexal mass? Let's say something we see pretty frequently, a woman who has a mass found on CT done after she's in a motor vehicle accident or presents to the ER for some other complaint.
1: Well, the approach of what to do when you find an adnexal mass is really based on two fundamental questions. The first of which is, what is the suspicion that the mass is malignant? And two, is the patient symptomatic? In the situation you've asked about here, where the patient's asymptomatic, stratification by risk of malignancy is key. A thorough history and physical exam should be performed first. Pelvic ultrasound, which is typically performed transvaginally but can also be done transabdominally, depending on the location of the mass, is the most valuable initial tool for imaging and should be considered the first-choice modality. In addition to size, complexity of the mass may be gleaned from ultrasound. The risk of malignancy increases with increasing complexity. Complex features include thick septations, solid components, nodularity, and surface excrescences. The presence of ascites may also be seen on transvaginal ultrasound in the posterior cul-de-sac, which is certainly associated with ovarian malignancy, but could also be due to other causes such as portal hypertension or congestive heart failure. Depending on the situation, further imaging with CT scan may be performed when one is concerned about the presence of metastatic disease. Also, MRI may be done to further delineate uterine versus adnexal structures, as MRI offers superior tissue contrast over CT scan and ultrasound. Finally, tumor markers should be obtained, including CA-125 and CEA. In premenarchal and reproductive age patients, markers for germ cell tumors and sex cord stromal tumors should also be collected, including HCG, AFP, LDH, and inhibin A and B. Compilation of all data, including age, physical exam, and findings from these diagnostic studies gives one the best ability to predict whether an NXL mass is benign or malignant. Now, regarding your question about an asymptomatic patient, any mass that's concerning for malignancy should be explored surgically mass greater than 10 centimeters in a reproductive age patient should be surgically explored regardless of concern for malignancy because it's unlikely to spontaneously resolve and is also unlikely to represent a functional cyst once it reaches this size. In a postmenopausal patient, unilocular cysts five centimeters or less with a normal CA-125 may be considered for observation with serial ultrasound and CA-125 every three to six months because the risk of malignancy is not zero but is very low. If the morphology becomes complex, the size increases, and or the CA-125 level increases above the normal range, then surgical intervention becomes warranted.
0: Now, do these recommendations differ or change when a patient is symptomatic? Well, somewhat.
1: Consideration of the symptoms may help one classify whether the mass is is in an neoplasm or not. There are other processes which may be disguised as an adnexal mass, including a tubo-ovarian or diverticular abscess, which would present with pain and possibly fever and leukocytosis upon evaluation. If the pain develops suddenly, it could be caused by acute changes such as adnexal torsion, hemorrhage into the mass, or rupture, causing hemoperitoneum or chemical peritonitis if a dermoid cyst ruptures. Any acute abdominal pain with a known adnexal mass should merit surgical evaluation. And of course, pregnancy should be ruled out immediately in women of reproductive age.
0: Great advice. Now, Camille, I'm wondering, if you choose to take a patient to surgery, would your approach differ based on these guidelines? Good question. The majority of patients
1: can be managed laparoscopically when surgery is warranted. The exception is a suspected advanced stage ovarian cancer or a large complex adnexal mass, which would not be able to be removed intact in a bag. The threshold for this is approximately 8 centimeters, as this tends to be the upper limit of size that can be extracted vaginally in an endocatch bag um, or along with the uterus. When complex masses are present that are less than eight centimeters, if a hysterectomy is being done concomitantly, the mass can be placed into an endocatch bag and removed vaginally after the colpotomy is made. If the patient has already had a hysterectomy or declines a hysterectomy, aspiration of the mass once it is contained within a cinched bag may be performed with a plan to send the fluid for cytology and the cyst wall to pathology. However, if the solid features are more than about several centimeters, The bag may not be able to be removed laparoscopically, and laparotomy may be required. Additionally, any patient undergoing laparoscopy should be consented for a laparotomy in the event the procedure cannot be completed laparoscopically, which commonly occurs with endometriosis and extreme obesity, among other reasons. Regarding washings, any suspicious mass should have pelvic washings collected at the beginning of the case for cytology to enable staging if the mass is found to be a cancer. SGO and ACOG released a joint guideline in 2005 to assist in triaging patients uh, for appropriateness to referral to a GYN oncologist. These guidelines are dichotomized by age less than 50 or greater than or equal to 50 and depend on CA-125 level, presence of ascites, evidence of distant metastasis, and family history. They've been validated in subsequent studies and have reasonable negative and positive predictive value. If an unexpected malignancy is found, referral to g oncology is always appropriate.
0: Okay, are there circumstances when you would deviate from these guidelines and choose not to operate on someone who meets criteria for surgery based on what you've talked about before?
1: Certainly. Some patients may be too medically comorbid to tolerate a surgery or may incur substantial risk of morbidity with surgery. In these situations, documentation of estimated risk of malignancy and estimated risks related to anesthesia and surgery is paramount. If the mass is symptomatic but the patient cannot or will not have surgery, aspiration of the mass via interventional radiology assistance may be helpful for reduction of symptoms. Patients who have a mass concerning for ovarian cancer are sometimes not surgical candidates due to distribution of disease on CT scan, recent cardiac stent placement, refusal of blood products, etc. cetera. In these situations, laparoscopic assessment with core biopsy or CT-guided biopsy with interventional radiology may be helpful to establish a diagnosis and elucidate treatment options.
0: Very good. And finally, can you talk about new testing or technologies that can help us evaluate adnexal masses and assess our patient's risk for malignancy?
1: Well, there are several new markers which have been developed in recent years. OVA-1 is a biomarker panel that measures five proteins, including CA-125, beta-2 microglobulin, apolipoprotein A1, prealbumin, and transparent. It was approved by the FDA in 2009 to help physicians triage adnexal masses and streamline referrals to G1 oncologists. The Society of Gynecologic Oncologists supported for testing in order to result in appropriate referral of patients, but notably OVA-1 testing has not been validated as a screening tool. In uh, recent years, the CA-125 to CEA ratio is a relatively uh, new concept which has been developed and is often included in clinical trial enrollment to help decipher site of neoplastic origin. A ratio that's greater than 25 is suggestive of ovarian origin, whereas uh, a ratio of less than 25 is often more consistent with gastrointestinal origin, except in the very rare instance of primary mucinous carcinoma of the ovary. Another approach is multimodality testing, wherein one combines several factors, including age and menopausal status, ultrasound results, and CA125 level. This approach has been shown to have high sensitivity and specificity. In 2015, the United Kingdom Collaborative Trial published their risk of ovarian cancer algorithm, also known as ROCA. The intent was to compare CA125 velocity within an individual over serial checks to determine ovarian cancer in contrast to using a threshold value with a excuse me a threshold with a single value which has been done traditionally. Notably, the authors found that this algorithm led to 86% sensitivity and 99.8% specificity values which are unheard of with other screening tests for ovarian cancer.
0: Wow. Dr. Gunderson, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the podcast today and providing our listeners with some really great information. Before we go, is there anything else you'd think our audience would benefit hearing today about the evaluation and management of adnexal masses?
1: I think the most important thing to keep in mind with this topic is that age is the largest risk factor for epithelial ovarian cancer, which encompasses 90% of ovarian cancers and also includes primary peritoneal and fallopian tube cancers, as these are all one clinical entity. The median age for epithelial ovarian cancer is 63, but BRCA-associated cancers occur in younger women, particularly women with a deleterious BRCA1 mutation. Family history is not always available, and it's not always suggestive in the cases of adoption or small families, or families which do not routinely discuss medical problems and medical history. So do not dismiss the possibility of BRCA mutation and thus predisposition to ovarian cancer based on age alone if clinical features are worrisome for malignancy.
0: Great. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today on the podcast. If you have any questions or would like a transcript of today's podcast, please contact me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's S M I T H at ouhsc.edu. Thanks for joining us today. Please stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma.